I'm going to go ahead and have you turn your Bibles uh, to 2 Kings chapter 19. If you need a Bible, uh, you can feel free to just, as these ushers come down with Bibles, uh, simply put up your hand and they'll be glad to provide you one. If you do not own a Bible, we ask that you just keep this one as one to have for yourself uh, as we would wish you to take advantage of the Lord's words and print. We're going to be on page 268 in the Bibles being handed out. Little context, we all come from a unique storyline in our lives and it affects our lens by which we interpret life. Me growing up in the plains of middle America in Kansas have little exposure to much of the things that happens on the coastlines. And for me and my family out west, uh, they would say that this is the coastline. You and I would not say that now. Living here, we'd say you go to the shore. Um, but for those that live in Kansas, they'd say you're living out on the coast. And, uh, and so it's, it's funny how the context speaks to that. But in my upbringing, in the culture of that part of America, the experiences that we do quite regularly within this area and this region, and in particular to this church, when we have different experiences of dedication or commissioning, that is something I did not grow up with. I did not grow up in a church context that dedicated babies. Uh, I did not uh, grow up in a context where you would dedicate children or, for that matter, commission ships at shipyards or commission buildings. Those were things that I, quite frankly, just was not exposed to. In fact, my first ever commissioning or dedication service service that I ever participated in was at my university as a junior in college. And, and it would have been in, in the year of 1992. And the, this big library was about ready to be built at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. And this library was going to have the name of the Walton Literacy Center. It was Sam Walton who was giving the money to see that uh, particular library being built. And if you don't know who Sam Walton is, he's the founder of Walmart. And Walmart's headquarters is about two hours from this university. So there was a lot of connections to uh, the Walmart Corporation. So he came that day to be a part of the dedication of that building. Now, it was the, the groundbreaking side of it, okay? So he gets up in, the, in, in this tractor that has a backhoe on it. He starts using the levers, which he seemed very much in the know on how to do. And he sticks that big hoe in the ground, pulls a big ton of dirt out, and then sets it off to the side. We celebrated. We clapped. We then prayed for the purpose of that building. And they clearly articulated the purpose of the building, and, uh, and we understood it, it, the heart behind why Sam was giving to that building. So they start laying the foundation of that building immediately. The next day, there's all kinds of construction equipment there. Within just a few weeks, there's now steel structures going up. And then as the steel structures go up, you're starting to see brick around the steel, and now it's an enclosed building. And then all of a sudden, construction stopped. You see, Sam Walton died that day. And the gift that was the final, there was a lead part of his gift, and then there was a secondary amount that was supposed to come, and he died before it was delivered. 
And for the next several years, this building that was, had Walton's name on it and brick and mortar all there and it looked nice was an empty shell. If you walked in, you'd see the steel structures, you'd see the gravel. The hope was is that the inheritors of his fortune would see to it that, that his desire to give to that project would happen and they made decisions that was different from that so it sat there. So now my first experience of dedication is somewhat tainted, right? Well, the, the president of the school, his name is Roy Blunt, who happens to be now a United States attorney uh, for the state, or not attorney, but senator for the state of Missouri. He's one of the higher-ranking Republican officials in Washington, D.C. Roy Blunt, I remember making statements that, like, the purpose of that building will happen. We are not going to make it for anything else. They had people that came and said, we'll, we'll give you big money, big money to finish it, but we would have a different purpose for it, a different mission. And they had to say no. And eventually they found some more donors that were willing to keep it with the mission that had been dedicated that day. I learned as an alum, as this journey had gone on way beyond my time as being a student there, that in this case... They held true to the vision and mission and didn't let money deter them from that. And it spoke volumes to me. But as I've gone on in pastoral ministry, I've experienced what you all have experienced, being a part of child dedications. And yes, sometimes dedications of, other, of pieces of property have now gone to schools and churches and been invited to participate in dedications of, of, of facilities being built or, again, participating as pastor with children being dedicated. Often when we pray the prayers, in particular over children, what are we praying for when we're praying over them. We, in our minds, certainly there's an aspect of protection, praying that they would be protected going forward and that they would have life that is unhindered. But that protection, and that's an appropriate prayer, is not meant to just simply protect so they become incubated, but they'd be protected to fulfill the purposes of God in their life. Now, not every parent, when they're praying over that child, is actually thinking that way. They're, many of them are thinking primarily about the protection of that child. But many of them also think not only protect them, but to protect them so that they can be used for the purposes of God here on this earth. Mission teams have been commissioned up here, many of them. And we have dedicated prayers over them, yes, that are rooted in protection, Yes, are about blessing, but blessing to fulfill the purposes and ministry of God, which is their mission. And so we dedicate them to that, praying for their protection and safe return, but so that they would be blessed in the mission they're called to do. Places of worship, when they're being dedicated, they are being dedicated for as a part of, a, of an important aspect of being a tool within the ministry or mission of that particular church. And so, yes, there is protection that is prayed when it's saying we're protecting the vision that is being prayed over this church. And that's what I experienced with my university, is they made sure that what we had prayed and we had dedicated that facility towards was unhindered, even if it took longer time than expected. So when it comes to structures and dedications of structures, 
is there really any kind of biblical support and importance to this? And, and a pretty easy read of the Old Testament would say yes. Even New Testament, there is blessings upon households, houses and households uh, of people that are in those homes. You see this idea of commissioning and dedication regularly from Genesis to Revelation. But to get the understanding of the importance of how to approach dedication and also commitment to vision, I believe we can capture it well by looking at a simple story that is found in the book of 2 Kings. So let's uh, read starting in verse 14 of chapter 19. Context is this. A king of Assyria is now coming up to Jerusalem. He has annihilated all the kingdoms between Assyria and Jerusalem. And he has even taken out the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we know that this is a fearsome army. It's a great military gathering that is coming up against Jerusalem. It is also fact that every country that chose not to yield to them simply were eradicated. So King Hezekiah, king of the, of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, he knew they were in a terrible situation. Letters had been sent from King Sennacherib, from the king of, who is the king of Assyrians, was sent to Hezekiah to say, surrender yourself or face, basically, annihilation. So let's look at how Hezekiah responds to these letters. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are over all, are over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, and, and, and who is sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God... Deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord, our God. Hmm. When you're desperate and you know that basically sheer death is right before you and you want to appeal to God, what do you say and where do you say it? I think that's what's very profound to me in this moment. So he receives the letters, likely probably at his palace. He receives the letters, and instead of crying out to God there, he leaves his palace, and he goes to the temple. He takes the letters that he'd received from the, the Assyrian king, lays it before God, and pleads. But he pleads by beginning and with the acknowledgement as to who God is, that he is the one true creator God, and that he is over all the kingdoms of the earth. So he gives the position of God as being the only God, the one true God, and he's over all the kingdoms of the earth. 
And then he petitions God on this matter. Now, I find it a little interesting as, as, you, as I read this, that he's saying, God, open your ears so that you can hear. Open your eyes so that you can see what is being done right here before us. As if God had his eyes closed or he had his ears plugged so that he couldn't see what was going on around the Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. So you have this, 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 this king who's desperate saying, Lord, somehow help us. But he appeals to his character and who he is. And then his big ask is verses 18 and 9 where he says, God, if for nothing else, do this for your own namesake. If for nothing else, do this for your own namesake. Your name is on the line. Now, why is it that God's name is on the line in this situation? Why would it matter? Obviously, if some small kingdom called Judah defeats the huge Assyrian army, that's going to be a pretty big deal. But who would get exalted in that? The king of Judah. And in this case, that king says, no, 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 not for my name. But for your name, God, deliver us from this invading army. It's a big ask. But he appeals to God's own name and his character. That he would be the one known by the nations of the world. Because keep in mind, he just wrote down that all the nations that the Assyrians took out on their way to Jerusalem, they simply took those nations' gods and burned them thus proving they were powerless. They were not real. So he has leveraged God a little bit here, saying they've been proven to be false. Now prove you to be true. Now, I have this question, and it's rhetorical, but I ask, why does he need to go to the temple to make this request? Why did he go there with the letters? I mean, he receives them. He's horrified by them. He runs to the temple and lays it out before God at the temple. To get that, I need to take you on a little bit of a journey of the story of the temple. In 1 Chronicles 17, you don't need to turn there. This is where God chooses David to be this king by whom he will make a holy dynasty of kings ongoing and into eternity because he says a kingdom that will never fade away. We know that Jesus Christ becomes the fulfillment of that as he was of the lineage of David and he is the king of kings who will reign for all eternity. So God chooses David to be this father of that dynasty. The vision then for the place by which the name of the Lord would be proclaimed and not just David's was going to be Jerusalem. Now it was King David who said to God in, in 1 Chronicles saying, I want to build a house for you. And God's response was, well, I've not asked you to do that. But David's plea was, I am in a house of cedar. I'm in this beautiful palace. But your ark where we worship to you and where we sacrifice things on behalf of our sins to you is in a tent while we're in permanent dwellings. So God affirms that this is a good thing. But he says to David, it will be built. 
but it won't be built by you. Because David was, a, was God's vassal for conquering the kingdoms around. And so he had become a man of blood. And he did not want a man of blood to be the one to build his temple, but rather a man of peace, which was King Solomon, who would be the son of David that would actually be the one to build the temple. So then you have in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, David in his final years preparing for the building of that temple. He gives of his own treasures to the building of that temple. And then he appeals to all the leaders of Israel and says, you need to follow my lead and give to this temple. Which, by the way, is the template that we used here at our church. Is that the leaders gave first and then we gave the opportunity to the greater congregation to give. And so in this, this moment, David is challenging the, to the nation and his leaders to give to the building of the temple. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 through chapter 4 is the building of the temple under the leadership of Solomon. Now I want you to turn to chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles, which will be on page 302 in the Bibles that were handed out. Don't lose 2 uh, Kings chapter 19. We're going to go back there. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, the temple is now built and it's being prepared this day for its commissioning, its dedication. And what we're going to look at is the vision for that temple being declared through prayer by Solomon. So I'm going to begin by reading uh, uh, in verse 14. Solomon's the one speaking to God. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with, with your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now the Lord, now Lord, the God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law as you have done. And now, Lord, the God of Israel, let your word that you promised to your servant David come true." But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The, the, the heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, Lord my God, give attention to your servant's prayers and his plea for mercy. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open towards this temple day and night. This place of which you said would put your, you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer of your, ser your servant praised towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place when you hear forgive. Skip down to verse 24. When your people, Israel, have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, 
praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave them to and to their ancestors. Verse 32, as for the foreigner who does not uh, belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as you do as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards this city you have chosen and the temple I've built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. All right, we're not going to turn back to 2 Kings yet, but let's unpack that for a moment. Praising God for who he is. Same prayer that Hezekiah prayed in 2 Kings. He's praying, acknowledging that God is the true God. He is the creator of all things and is the one who is over all kingdoms of the earth. So there's an ascribing of the Lord, his, what is due him, which is he is the all-powerful God. And in verse 15, that he is the God who keeps his promises. And he made a promise to David that he would have a successor always on the throne. And then we, we see that Solomon asked God to keep those promises in verse 16. And then you see this moment with, with Solomon, it's like where there's this, a moment of reality, like this temple is incredible, but it's so small to the greatness of who God is. Could possibly a small place as this temple Behold the whole presence of God and be able to be contained in such a place. And there, there was a moment of reality realizing what he's asking of God. And then in 20 to 31, those verses, which we didn't read all of them, he is basically saying that when the people of Israel make their mistakes, when they sin or they fall off the wagon in their commitment to God, when they realize they have sinned and they pray back towards the temple, and acknowledge your name, which is said in each case, he pleads to God, forgive them and restore them. Over and over and over again, you see Solomon saying that when they realize their condition of sin or when they're under threat by a foreign enemy, if they turn towards the temple where your name is held in high honor and they pray to you, hear them, listen to them, not for their sake, but for the sake of your name, forgive them. That is the theme and the purpose of the temple. It was a place where God was going to allow his presence to be and his name was going to be placed there, giving a focal point here on this earth by which people could pray and meet with God. Now I want us to look at the conclusion of Solomon's prayer in verse 41 and following of 2 Chronicles 6. And he says this, so now that he's prayed all these things, he says, Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place. 
you and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. So he goes back. He acknowledges again in closing the prayer. He outlines his entire prayer. You are God. You're over all. I don't know how you're going to allow the fullness of your presence be found in one place, but may your presence rest here, which is a statement basically saying that it's a constant sense that is so suffocating that you can't help but know God is there. That's where his presence is going to rest. And then he says, God, may when people come to this temple, may they experience your might and power. And then he also says, and may the priests who serve before you in this temple, may they have a message of salvation upon their lips. And then as people come and they hear that message of salvation upon the lips of the priest, may they be rejoicing, not in the goodness of the priest, but in the goodness of their God. And then he closes his prayer by saying, and please don't forget your promises to David. Because now the promise to David and God's very own name are tied together. Because as the promise to David had come from God, if the promise to David had been unfulfilled, then God's name is the one that is hurt. This isn't about David's name being great. This is about a promise of God that then causes the tie of God's name to David's name. That if David fails to have a successor, then God's name is hindered. So God, remember your servant David that he would have a successor for all of eternity. That's the purpose of this temple that was being built, that it would be a place to encounter God when you're in a time of need. When you realize you need direction or you need to escape, or if you realize, I'm a sinner, and you plead for forgiveness from God, and were to pray towards the temple that had his name. But it's a place where we can hear the truths of salvation. It's a place where we can rejoice over the goodness of God and to remember the promises of God are true. Now I want us to turn back to the story in 2 Kings. Hezekiah has just gone to the temple and he understands why he should go to the temple because of the stories of, of, of the very commissioning of the temple. Its purposes was that it was to be a place that if an enemy comes against you, you go towards the temple and you pray for deliverance. If you realize that you've sinned, you go towards the temple and you acknowledge your sin and you receive the message of salvation. Hezekiah knew the purpose of the temple. He knew its commissioning. He knew that the name of the Lord was upon it, which is why when he prayed at the temple with those letters from the king of Assyria, he said, God, you are God. You are the God over all kingdoms. Reveal yourself by delivering us 
as to keeping your promises with David, but so that the nations of the world will know that you are God. That was the prayer of Hezekiah that lines up very specifically for the mission and vision of the temple. So how does God respond to this? I love this response. Verse 32 of chapter 19. God responds to this prayer by saying, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. He will not even shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will now return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. Why? Because I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. So God comes to the rescue. He's saying that as, as what we would say in the Midwest, uh, that the, the king of Assyria is not even going to sniff the smells of Jerusalem. He won't get within earshot of it either because God is their defender. So he's kept out, out away from Jerusalem because God declares himself as the defender and the savior of the Judah kingdom. He has heard the prayer of Hezekiah. He has heard the prayer of Hezekiah because he had heard the prayer of Solomon. And he heard the prayer of Solomon because he had heard the prayer of David. And with David, he responded because he had a vision to accomplish a greater mission that even David could ever have perceived going forward. He had discovered it and, or revealed it to David so that for all time we'll know that God is God and that we are not. That God is God and that his promises are trustworthy. And that God is God, that if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. And because God is a good God, not only will he forgive us, but he'll become our defender and our savior. Amen? Man, it's amazing. And I love that he even says, I'm gonna do this not only for my namesake, I'm gonna do it for David's as well. That's how God is. His words are good, so he says that. So now what does this mean for you and I? What it means is this, that when we consider commissioning of any kind or dedication, that when we pray, we're praying for protection of the vision. We're not praying just to be protected. We're praying for the protection of the vision that it will continue forward beyond our lifetime. So in praying for our future as a church, we are dedicated to the calling of God to what he has given as the mission of the church, the greater sea church, which is to go out into the harvest field as proclaimers of Jesus. Our commissioning 
by Jesus Christ is that we're to make disciples who are like Jesus and that we see the opportunity to love God the way he loved God, to love people the way he loved people, to live out truth as truth actually is, not spun into some truth that becomes muddied by our, our false teachings, but rather a truth that is rooted in his heart. And then ultimately to proclaim that all this comes from the liberating work of Jesus Christ. Love God, love people, live truth, proclaiming Jesus. That is the mission and vision of the Greater Sea Church. Whether the church uses a different phraseology, it's all consistent. That's what's found in Scripture that we're called to do. And so when we dedicate ourselves as a church, we're dedicating ourselves to the vision that God had for his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not human beings, he will. And we are then his tools in his hands by making that happen as he sends us out into the harvest field. So as a result, since we're under that vision that God has given us, we then pray for his protection of the mission he has called us to as a church, that we would never waver from it, but that we'd stay true to it, that it's not bent by money or bent by influence of other, but rather we're committed by the leadership of the Holy Spirit to going forward to that vision, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And to fulfill that mission, yes, the church building is a place where we worship, we praise his name, we teach truths to apply to our lives. And yes, we finish by commissioning each other to then fulfill the calling of God that he has upon each of us. That is the point of gathering, is that when we gather, it's not just for holy protection, lest we become uh, uh, distorted in our understanding. It is meant to come here so that we receive, so that we can then go. One of my concerns as we lay this, this, this project before us that is a building, not the church. We're the church, not the building. The building, one of the concerns is, is that some in their minds might see it as a finish line. It is not a finish line. This church called LESC began in 1980. The finish line, if there is one, is to come to the place where we're standing before the Lord God Almighty and he says to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in and enjoy my favor for all of eternity. There's the finish line. The building is merely a part in our journey as a church and a tool by which we can fulfill the mission of God upon us all. It is a tool. It is a place where we will worship. It is a place where we'll praise his name. It is a place where we'll teach so that we can apply it to our lives and fulfill, again, that commission that God has given us to reach others for his name. In conclusion, this building has been, as this building has taken shape over the years and even began across the street with what we call the mill, when it came to this side and we began to expand here over time, this building has been and will be for the use of God to challenge us it will be used for the use of, of bringing our burdens, to bring our questions, and yes, a place where we can come and pray and plead to God for his response. This is a house of prayer. It's changing shape, but its mission and its vision remains the same. It is a house of prayer where we encounter God for the benefit of his growing kingdom. Amen?
Let's pray. With the intent of saying this, that it's to your name be glory and honor forever and ever. Not a local church's name, but the church of Jesus Christ, the greater church. All of us bear that name, and we are excited, Lord, to be a part of a harvest. That's what we're praying for, and we're praying that that harvest is way beyond the borders of our region, and that that the churches in this region will be a part of a greater movement that we are all leaning in together, petitioning you, God, for a greater movement where our hearts are revealed before you as where our sin can be confessed. But then, Lord, that we then have the vision where we can see the harvest field that we actually walk in every day and begin to then minister within it, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. So God, may we never fall short in the mission and vision that you've called the greater church. And Lord, if, the, if we realize the commissioning of a building, may it fulfill its intended purposes, which we're gonna dedicate on someday in the future, that it will be a place by which we encounter you. We pray together as a body, but we also commission each other as a body to go out and serve the greater kingdom of your work. Lord, let that be but may your name be the one exalted, no other. In Jesus' name I pray that, amen. I don't know what church history you come from. If you were, when you were an infant, ever dedicated before the Lord and before a church by your parents. But if you have ever given yourself to Jesus Christ and you went through what is called water baptism, then there was a public dedication on your part to commissioning yourself to being dedicated to God's vision for your life. There are times when renewing that vision and commitment to that vision are appropriate. And so if you're willing to join me in renewing our commitments to the vision that God has for our lives, would you be willing to hold out your hands now and pray in your heart as I pray aloud? a renewal to that vision. God, I am committed to your kingdom here on this earth. Your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. Your name be praised, not mine. And Lord, renew us today. Help us to see the vision that you would have for each of our lives be afresh and anew today. And may we be committed to it. May we be protectant of that vision where we tenaciously defend the calling you have upon us. Raise up within us anew a calling of our hearts to serve your greater work around us. May you use us in our oikos, that relational world that you've placed around us, those that are believers, non-believers, prodigals, seekers, maybe even antagonists.